welcome to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon, chartered psychologist and coach, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pilar Orti. Pilar, how are you doing today? Yes, I am very good. It's nice and sunny outside, which is great for the daytime, but maybe not so good for the nighttime. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. You know, I was on my way into the office this morning, really enjoying the view of blue skies and sunshine, but I had a sudden thought, which is a bit of a tangent to today's topic, but boy, am I glad I can choose what to wear when I go to work. Mm. Um, with these high temperatures, it can be really uncomfortable to have to either follow a formal uniform yeah. or indeed even possibly worse, the unspoken uniforms that some organizations require. So yeah, not that anyone needs to know this, but um, shorts and t-shirt are the order of the day today. <laughs> it's great. But yes, you make a really good point, which is nighttime temperatures can be a problem, um, especially if you're not used to it. And that's really what I want to um, kickstart our discussion with today, because today's episode's all about sleep. And the recent heat wave that we've had here uh, in the UK and, and for a lot of Europe has brought um, sleep and disruption of sleep right to the front of our minds, of our awareness, because these nighttime temperatures have made it quite difficult for many people to get a good night's sleep. And of course, we feel that the next day. You know, we might feel the frustration and the upset and the anxiety during the night, uh, but really it hits us hard the next day. And when we're sleep deprived, Lots of the things that we take for granted can feel so much more difficult, like concentrating uh, for any length of time, uh, making good decisions, um, regulating our emotions and things like that. These are really, really important functions, particularly in the workplace. And they're so much more difficult when we haven't had enough sleep. Now, speaking personally, I wasn't too badly affected Um our apartment is on quite a high level, and if you open enough windows, you create a wind tunnel effect, mm -hmm. and it's it's not so bad. But still, yeah, it wasn't optimal sleeping, and I really did notice some difference um, when the routines are knocked out of kilter. So I, I don't know about you. How did you survive that, those really high temperatures, Pilar? Well, I wasn't in London, so that was... <laughs> my main way Bonus. but I have to say it was really interesting that I was listening I think it was something like wake up to money I think maybe something political was going on in the UK and I wanted to keep up with it and I found it very odd that they were talking about duvet um, thickness or toggles, toggles or whatever they're called and I was thinking <laughs> why on earth are you talking about duvets when it is so hot uh, but I find it really interesting the, the cultural aspects of what we used to and I have to say that I stick to my duvet for as long as possible because for me it's cold that really um, stops me from going to sleep so I just I well how I regulate that though is by I have layers so in the winter mm. I will have maybe two duvets or a duvet and a blanket so that when I go into bed when I'm cold, I can then through the night as I get warmer, I can take a layer off. And in the summer, it's the same thing. I have a sheet, a bed sheet, and then a very thin blanket on top. So I go into that and then through the night, I'll, I'll uncover. So I think layers are quite a nice thing that I use. And that's a really good point, isn't it? Because we each have our own preferences for what works for us. Though sometimes it's useful to take a step back and wonder, is there a better way of doing this? Is there a way of sleeping? <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. A way of organizing my sleep, maybe, um, that could improve the quality and the duration of the sleep. Because over the longer term, 
And I don't mean for the odd evening here or there, but over the longer term, uh, sleep disturbance and insufficient quality sleep has been strongly implicated in a whole range of serious health conditions. And they're the, the physical ones, but also psychological. And our, our cardiac health uh, can be impacted um, in increase in obesity and diabetes and, and reproductive health. And when we don't get enough of that sleep, it, it very quickly impacts our, our memory because sleep contributes to if you like, the encoding of what we've encountered and learned during the day. Um, our judgment, our sensitivity to stress, the propensity to, to take risks. Um, and of course, it can have some behavioral consequences when we don't get enough sleep. In other words, we rely on stimulants like caffeine just to get through the day, um, which can have a knock-on effect. I'll come back to that. But mm -hmm. also, um, the obesity link is quite an interesting one because disturbed sleep, insufficient sleep can impact our, the hormones that contribute to how hungry we are versus how full we feel, but also some of the behaviors, the, the, the behavioral consequences, like what we choose to eat. And we might seek out some comforting food that's really not so good for us. So it's complex, much more complex than most of us um, consider. And it's useful to scratch the surface. And so what I thought I would do we could discuss this in this episode is, is take a step back from sleep um, because it's one of those few universal experiences that humans have and actually look at it a little bit more objectively and wonder, are there some habits that I have that might be sabotaging my attempt to get a good night's sleep? Um, so, so really not to say you must do these things, absolutely not, but to highlight some of the ways that we get between ourselves and a good night's sleep. How does that sound, Pilar? Yeah, that, that sounds good because I think you're right that there are lots of different things around sleep and a lot of different things that contribute to it as, as well as a lot of, like you're saying, a lot of consequences. Um, and I just wanted to pick up, you were talking about the effect it has on memory. And mm. I recently came across a quote, which, which I thought I'd share, um, which is from a book called How to Have a Good Day by Caroline Webb. And the quote said, going short of sleep is like forgetting to save a document that you worked on all day. I love that. It's just great about how uh, the importance of wrapping up your day with sleep so that all that stuff you've done during the day was not wasted. I just thought it was really nice, isn't it? It's, re it's really good. And, you know, sleep comes up um, regularly in the work that I do, most often from the perspective of well-being. You know, it really sits at the the very foundations of our well-being. I make the point to organizational decision makers that there's no point investing in in tons and tons of well-being initiatives if they don't include sleep, yes. because a lack of sleep or activities and ways of working that that shorten people's sleep, they will undo all of that good stuff you're trying to do elsewhere. But sometimes it's about hooking people's attention to make sleep a priority. So maybe well-being isn't the hook that works for them. Maybe it's productivity. And there you go. You, you won't remember, you won't learn from today unless you get a good sleep tonight. And maybe it's about relationships. And you'll find it a lot harder to remain cool and calm if you haven't had enough sleep. And that could... Um, that could hamper some of your key relationships or depending on how, how important you place this, it could really damage your reputation at work if you end up flying off the handle. Uh, so, you know, sleep permeates all of these things and that's why it's, it's really, really important. But of course, we started talking about the weather hmm. and, and, and we can try and cool our environment, absolutely, but we can't control the fact that there are heat waves. There are so many things outside of our control get, that can hamper 
um, our sleep. What I'd really like to focus on today are the things that are a little bit more in our control. And they're about the decisions that we make and when we decide to do things or whether we decide to do something or not. Now, really, I'd like listeners to think of this as a menu. Choose things from this. Don't try and do all of these things. Whenever I run uh, webinars or workshops on the on the um, topic of healthy sleep habits, it's an important caveat because if you try to implement all of this in one go, it would it would be very disruptive, and you know it would probably have more of a negative impact than anything else. I think the second important thing to note before we jump in, and I'm sure listeners are aware of this, but I'm not a physician. Pilar, have you obtained a medical degree since we last spoke? No. Okay, you're you're not a physician either. <laughs> so we're not giving medical advice here. What we're doing is sharing uh, what some of the research about sleep says about some of the habits and give people a chance to have a look at them afresh. If you have got concerns about sleep and, and your well-being uh, from a serious perspective, have a chat with the doctor, have a chat with someone who's qualified to give that kind of advice. So my first question would be, how do you know if you're getting enough sleep? Pilar, how do you know if you've had a good night's sleep? Um, so quite specifically, so I get up in the morning and I have, um, breakfast while I watch a short sitcom and then I sit on the sofa for about 20, 25 minutes to read. And if I start falling asleep, which I, I do very often, but I, that is the moment that I notice if I've had a good night's sleep is whether I'm starting to fall asleep again or whether I'm okay. Then throughout the day, I don't usually notice it, uh, but that is the moment that I've realized if I've had a bad night's sleep usually. And then what I do, because I'm freelance and the way I run my day, I just take a 10-minute nap and that's usually enough for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a really good indicator, isn't it? How how likely you are to go straight back or to go mm. back to sleep in the morning once you've yeah. woken up. But for me, it, it's um, very obvious if I'm relying on my alarm clock to wake me up. Mm-hmm. If an alarm wakes me up, um, this is not a great sign for me. If I wake up before the alarm, it's a natural waking up and I feel so much better in the morning and I can I can get going, really. Yeah. But if the alarm wakes me up, uh, that's zombie time for quite some time to get me going. And while I often will have a nap in the middle of the day, um, that's a, a comfort thing. But uh, with a bad night's sleep, that's a necessity thing mm. if I want to be at all productive and present in the afternoon. So frequently, it's useful to ask yourself, do I think I'm getting enough sleep um, before I want to make any changes? Maybe listeners have optimized all of this. It'd be great if you continued to listen, but maybe uh, <laughs> you, you, you wake up and you feel refreshed and you feel great and you can get on with your day. That, you know, that's a good, a good sign. We don't need devices or technology in bed to tell us, have we had um, enough sleep? Just Ask yourself, could I go back to sleep right now? Um, so that's that's a really good indication, but also maybe other people might give you feedback hmm? <laughs> about your mood, your your behavior, your attentiveness, your concentration. So it's it's not always a, as cut and dry as your your levels of of sleepiness, because that could be down to a whole host of factors. But what I'd like to do is maybe run through some thoughts on this. Divided into three themes. There are habits, there are activities and decisions that we can engage in during the daytime. 
that can have an impact on our sleep. There are things that we do in the evening in the run-up to bedtime that can have an impact on our sleep. And of course, what we do in the bedroom itself, that, that nighttime experience can definitely have an impact on our sleep, positive and negative. So let, let's start with what do we do during the day, those daytime habits. One that comes up a lot uh, in discussions about sleep is the food and drink that we consume during the day. And often it's really useful to reflect for very important reasons, just how much caffeine we consume during the day or other stimulants and how late we have them during the day. Um, caffeine in particular has uh, quite a long half-life, which means, you know, um, after several hours, you know, five, six, seven hours, we've only really processed half of the caffeine. And, and it's important to reflect on uh, how much we have of that, how late we have uh, the caffeine or other stimulants like nicotine, for example. Now, we differ quite a bit um, as individuals uh, as to the speed with which we process this. That's, that's, we differ at a genetic level. Um, but just thinking about how late and how much you have of these things and maybe the quality of your sleep, it could be a good idea to either pare back slowly over time, the amount of caffeine you have, or finish your caffeine consumption a little bit earlier in the day. Now, m many people will be sensitive to that, so they you know, quit the coffee at lunchtime. But I think we probably all know people who will have an espresso after dinner and will sleep like a baby. So this isn't a hard and fast rule. It's maybe just something to reflect on. Similarly, um, caffeine isn't just in coffee. It's in lots of substances that we consume, lots of food and drink. And something that's worth reminding everyone of is that decaf doesn't mean no caff. It means reduced caffeine. There is still some caffeine in there. So if you're particularly sensitive to caffeine and its effects, decaf may be not the right way to go. So this is a judgment call. Have a think, have a reflection. If you're like me, uh, maybe keep a record of how many coffees you've had during the day because it can be easy to just automatically consume these drinks, particularly if you enjoy them. Um, don't cut them out immediately. Don't reduce them suddenly because, oh, wow, the, the pain of caffeine absence <laughs> can be quite disturbing. And that, you know, that's something we want to avoid as well. So it's a reflection point. Maybe you're eating and drinking things during the day that have an impact on your capacity to drift off to sleep at night. Pilar, what, what do you think about that? Is that something you're mindful of? Oh, completely. So I drink three co coffees maximum a day. And usually the 11 o'clock one or the 10 o'clock one is uh, decaf. Um, and, but I'm very interested what you said about the individual, um, well, our, in, the, our differences around this. Because a friend of mine, I had coffee with her the other day at 10.30 in the morning and she was having a decaf. And she says mm -hmm. she just noticed that even coffee she's had really early on, then eventually she, she notices that at night. So her mind just goes wild. So I found that, I think that it's so important to be very aware of what affects us. So, yeah. It's, it's useful to reflect rather than jump on a bandwagon because someone else is doing it. Mm. It, it, it may not have the same results uh, for yeah. each of us. So thinking about that, I'll, I'll share a very embarrassing story about uh, caffeine. Many, many, many years ago <laughs> for work, I had to travel to the U.S. Um, the, kind of right in the middle of continental America. And 
the jet lag hit me really hard and I was miserable. And then um, a few days into working in this office, um, I'd, I'd mentioned it to one of my, my colleagues and they said, well, maybe you want to, you know, reduce how much of that you're drinking. I was like, what, what do you mean? I just had a soft drink. What I'd been doing for the first four days or so of my visit was going to the drinks machine and, and getting a drink I'd never had before oh. and enjoying it and having two or three cans of that in the afternoon and then finding it very difficult to sleep in the evening. <laughs> of course, it was Mountain Dew. It was absolutely raked full of caffeine and, oh. and it was pure ignorance on my part. So it wasn't the jet lag at all. It was my own terrible lack of awareness of what I was actually drinking. So, <laughs> I but, haven't had it since. <laughs> but that's something I would never think of doing when it's a new drink of checking. I, mm. I, I might not even check what it's got. So that's a very good story. <laughs> yeah. And the flip side of that is, um, you know, uh, something that we might consume in the evening, but we'll, we'll come back to that um, a little bit later. So just being mindful of this stuff, not making any sudden changes in it. Now, you mentioned it earlier, I mentioned it earlier, the impact of naps. Um, naps can be really positive, um, really helpful for us. There's great evidence that shows short, uh, brief naps during the day can really recharge the batteries and increase our ability to concentrate. They kind of become problematic when they're too long or mm. too late in the day. So there's a sort of a mid-afternoon optimal time to take a short nap. And it can be a really good idea to set a timer so that you don't drift off into something far too long. That could also leave you with that um, grogginess that you associate with waking up in the morning and then detract from the evening's sleep. But I, I, would, I would suggest that the evidence for naps vastly outweighs any risk of them being um, a, uh, a negative impact on the night's sleep. But if you're a napper, have a think about when you have your nap and whether it actually does help you um, get through the day versus does it make nighttime a little bit more difficult. I know that um, when NASA studied this decades ago, the evidence was so compelling. They, they introduced places for people to take naps in the workplace. They saw the advantages of just a brief 20-minute nap to be so unexpectedly positive, they became advocates for it. It's difficult though, isn't it, in many workplaces to have that nap and it would maybe be frowned upon in many, in many places. So um, we're not all lucky enough to be able to do that, I suppose would be my main reflection on that. Is that, a, is that an everyday thing for you, Pilar? Um, not every day, but what I have noticed is I, I know the length at which it's just an energizer. Mm. And then I know there are some times when I go, oh, I slept a little bit too long. This is going to um, affect my ability to go to sleep. And it does. So I've, I've, I've got my, my nap, <laughs> my nap sorted. <laughs> mm, mm. It's, it's good to reflect on that, isn't it? Yeah. We can also hamper um, our quality of sleep by having a very irregular waking up time. This is something that people groan uh, audibly at when I mention it in workshops, that actually if we, for example, have a very regular wake-up time Monday to Friday, but then drift from it significantly at the weekend, we're kind of setting ourselves up for a mini jet lag. And it needn't be hours and hours different, but even just a few hours can accumulate so that when we try to get back into the routine on Monday, it hits us really hard. It's the equivalent of going several hours away um, 
enough to cause a sort of a mini jet lag. So the, the really boring answer to this is to have the same wake up time seven days a week, or um, if we're going to be less Spartan about the whole thing, maybe don't deviate from it significantly at the weekend. And if you really need to have a nap in the afternoon, that investment in waking up early um, avoids lots of other problems that will come around to get us either getting to sleep on a Sunday night or waking up on a Monday morning. But if you think about society, at least Western society, it, it talks about, you know, the Friday night out, the Saturday morning lie in, breakfast in bed on a Sunday. A lot of these things can hamper our ability to stick with the routine. And routine is so important when it comes to sleep. But very few people I talk with uh, really welcome the idea of getting up at the same time seven days a week. It sounds like a bit of a chore, right? Yes, only you know what happens sometimes. <laughs> we get up even earlier <laughs> in the weekend. Nice. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it it depends. Um, we, we I've really got a routine now. I don't know how it's happened where we wake up more or less at the same time, and I think it has to do with stuff that might have been happening next door that was waking us up. And so what happens now is that it's because we because I'm not a party animal anymore. I don't go to bed very late. So during the weekend, if we didn't go to bed very late, then I get up, I wake up at the same time. And sometimes it's earlier, but because I know that I can get up and do nothing, I get up <laughs> really excited. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy that lack yes. of work. Yeah, yes. that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, our age, our, well, it, I was just going to say that it differs mm. across the lifespan, really, doesn't yes. it? And our sleep patterns do change. Um, I really... It depends, is the answer. I really like to have a lot of time at the weekend. Um, but what I've noticed is, I mean, I'm doing my four-day week at the moment. So actually, by the time Saturday rolls around, I'm eager to get up and get out and do things, which is not how I used to be, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, and I do notice if I can maintain that on a Sunday. Monday isn't a hassle at all. Yeah. Uh, but if I, for some reason, miss that wake-up time, it kind of throws my whole weekend into a bit of chaos, really. And I do notice the difference. It's something that's difficult to get into. Now, of course, all of the parents listening to this will say, yes, what? I was thinking of that. <laughs> they have their little natural alarm clocks. Uh, or indeed, some pet owners will find that, you know, yeah. their pets don't know what a weekend is. They just want to be, you know, walk me or feed me at the same time. But for maybe younger people or people living, living by themselves, um, it can feel like a real indulgence to sleep a little longer. I think for many people, this is based on a false belief that they can top up their sleep, that they've missed all week by doing this at the weekend. But it doesn't really work that way. We need to get an optimal amount of sleep every 24 hours. We can't build up an extensive sleep debt and then pay it off on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. So it's useful to say, actually, every 24 hours, I need to focus on my sleep and not hopefully make up for it in the future. Like most things to do with our well-being, we can't really take care of it in one go. We need to have it as an area of focus on an ongoing basis. Now, over the last um, few years, something has come to the fore, not through anybody's fault, but as a function of the working from home during lockdown experience, and that's working from bed. Now, there are people who will have done this well before uh, lockdown. But for many people, they, they didn't have a home office, they, they were short on space, and they found they could get solitude and a bit of quiet 
when working from bed. But of course, what that does is very simply is build up an association between uh, the place that we want to be the most relaxed and sleep and work. And even if you have a dream job, even if you love what you do for a living, it's work. And there's aspects of work that cause us to feel pressure, feel stress, um, have difficult decisions to make, uh, maybe difficult relationships, whatever it might be. There are demands on us. And the last thing we want to do is build up an association between our bed and those difficult work demands. So really, I know I can't say never do this because there, there are many people who will find this is, this is where I get stuff done. But the bedroom should ideally be a place where we associate it with relaxation, with sleep, not with all of the stuff that comes at us from work. So maybe think about at least not being in bed while working, maybe bringing a chair into the room and working from a chair rather than from bed. And I know this is really difficult uh, for, for many people who are listening to this, but it will inevitably have a negative impact on sleep. And not just that though, it's worth pointing out that beds are not designed for us mm. to work in them. And so from an ergonomic perspective, it's not doing anything for our backs, for our, our necks, our heads, wrists, all the rest of it. So finding somewhere a little bit more desk-like to work from is, um, is a good shout. So let's have a look at sort of the, the evening uh, of, our, of our days. Um, well, what can be really useful? I mentioned routine. It's, it's really helpful for us to have a, a wind-down routine in the run-up to wanting to be asleep. And the mistake that many of us make is this sort of cliff edge approach where we're active, 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 doing lots of stuff, maybe even working late, but we're active, active, active. And then suddenly I get into bed. Why can't I sleep? And that's because our brain doesn't work like that. Uh, our bodies don't work like that. We don't have a switch that we flick. It's a, it's a period of wind down into sleep. And the more regularly that we can do this and the more that our wind down routine is made of calming, relaxing, soothing, enjoyable, quiet things, the more likely that when we actually get into bed, our body, our brain goes, oh yeah, it's time for sleep now. Let's go to sleep. Now, there's no rules with a wind down routine, but the principles would be that it is replicated uh, each evening, that it roughly starts at the same time, and that it doesn't involve things that are too either psychologically or physiologically arousing not too exciting. And this is one of the problems we have with our evening routines. We might do things that leave us interested, stimulated, or even anxious because we're watching something on TV too late or we're working too late and we're telling our mind, solve these problems, deal with this trauma I've seen online and now go to sleep. It doesn't really work that way. So anything that minimizes those screens, anything that minimizes that sort of cognitive stimulation or emotional stimulation can be part of the routine. And I know, again, the parents listening to this will say, well, we have a routine with the kids every night. We're trying to bath them and get them to bed. Well, it works for adults too. And mm -hmm. it could be part of that routine. And having that routine just removes the uncertainty, removes the variability and allows us to feel more likely that we'll fall asleep when we get into bed. Anything you'd like to share about your routine, Pilar? Um, it, it involves television, and the last thing I do is read in bed a fiction book. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed was that I used to be able to work a little bit late, but now I know that 
9.30, quarter to 10 is the very latest that I can be doing work if I don't want to then go to bed at 11 and have my brain still working. So that's something that I've had to mm -hmm. adjust is not work that late so that my mind can relax for quite a while before I go into bed. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? You, you, each of us have our own routines and mm. rhythms. So working back from the time you want to be asleep, it's kind of a general rule of thumb to have 90 minutes between the end of something stimulating, exciting, or difficult. It, go through that wind-down wind routine over 90 minutes, and then it's sleep time. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to just switch off. Now, exhaustion will kick in if we're sleep-deprived. Absolutely. It's a biological necessity, and we all know it's very difficult to fight us. If you uh, fight it, <laughs> if mm. you've ever had jet lag, you'll know that it's a very powerful force. But unless you're absolutely exhausted, it's about routine and um, working through that routine. And we've mentioned screens, um, you know, ha having too much engagement with screens in the run-up to sleep is problematic, not just because of the blue light they emit, but because of what we're looking at. If Are we working too late, as you said? Are we seeing things that don't uh, relax us? Or indeed, is it a bottomless pit, like social media? Mm. Um, the internet full stop. You can't watch all of YouTube. You can't read all of Twitter. And so there's no natural end to it that there might be with a physical book. Oh, right. That's the end of a chapter. Um, maybe I'll close my book now and go to sleep. We don't get the reminders from these tools that we use or these sources of entertainment because they're not designed that way. They're designed to hook us and draw us in. So to be very aware of how much time you're unintentionally spending on those screens and what it might mean. Now, it's not just work. It can also be personal. It could be things that spark ideas and thoughts and maybe pressure or worries and you're already in bed. It's not really great. So maybe think about doing that stuff before you get into bed and keep bed for sleep as, as much as you can. Something that surprises people um, who are very active is that, yes, you can exercise too late. So again, vigorous physical exercise, going for that late night run or going to the gym late because it's nice and quiet. If it's too close to your bedtime, um, it could damage uh, your capacity to fall asleep when you want to. So again, a rule of thumb would be to finish that exercise before you begin your nighttime routine, your, your go-to-bed routine. So you've got a good hour or 90 minutes to wind down and relax. We mentioned food. We mentioned the stuff that, that, that we consume during the day. The same thing holds at night. And when I talk about myths about uh, sleep during my workshops, you know, one I always mention is, eating cheese gives you nightmares. And of course, that's a myth. Um, but eating new strange things, eating too much of something or eating too late at night can impact our sleep just because that physiological, that gastric upset can uh, impair our sleep. Now, it might not wake us up into consciousness, but it might prevent us having that deep sleep, that restorative sleep. So being mindful of what we eat and drink in the evening and the run-up to sleep and maybe not deviating from that too much can uh, be helpful. I'll leave alcohol for its own um, category here <laughs> because um, it is not a great idea 
to drink uh, lots of alcohol in the run-up to sleep because it just basically impairs our sleep significantly. It, it is um, something that makes people feel drowsy, uh, but that's not the same as getting good quality sleep. And it shreds our REM, our REM sleep. That's really important. We get a lot less of that if we've had alcohol. So that, that's something else to have on the far side of that wind-down routine, to have it as far away from bedtime as possible. That's another message people don't like to hear when I run these workshops. So I do feel <laughs> a bit like a, an angel of doom talking about this stuff. Um, but it's just useful to remember that drowsiness, uh, sleepiness from alcohol is not the same as natural sleepiness and good quality sleep. Anything you've noticed, um, I, I've noticed the, the, the eating too late at night. I just mm. can't do it. It really impairs my sleep. Anything from your perspective? That as well. And it's a real bummer for me because I like to have dinner as late as possible in the day so that dinner for me is the moment in the day that marks the end of the working day. Mm -hmm. But I found that if I do eat earlier around seven o'clock, seven thirty, then I do feel much better by the time I go to bed. So for me, it's, uh, it's, it's that constant, but, but yes, definitely. And I did read somewhere that especially, well, especially meat. Uh, and I read somewhere that it took about four hours to digest a steak, which actually doesn't surprise me. So <laughs> I've also done that. I'm, uh, every now and then we'll have a burger at seven o'clock one evening. And every night when I go to bed, it's like, no, we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> so I'm very aware of food um, and exercising too late. I've also stopped doing that. It, it's an interesting one because we can see um, how maybe travel, whether it's holidays or yes. business travel, can shake up all of these things. Mm. And it can mean that we're not sleeping as well as we would like. You know, strange bed, strange location, eating too late, eating too much, having too much alcohol, maybe the time difference, all of these things um, can, can have that impact. So again, just looking at your habits and wondering, could I make a small change here? Could I uh, adjust this? And then have a look and see, does it help me? Um, it's not, there's no silver bullets. There's no magic here. It's um, experiment and notice the difference it makes. The bedroom <laughs> is really important. This is going to sound so redundant, but mm. the way we set up our place for sleep, of course, has a huge impact. Um, our sleep is uh, destroyed by external factors like noise from the neighbors, a barking dog in the street, or as I've had for years now where I live, construction noise at oh. the weekends, um, and, and you know other things, alarms going off. But the bedroom, um, whatever we've got control over, we should focus on. So for example, keeping it as dark as possible and potentially using blackout curtains to make sure that we're not in the summer months woken up by sunrise before we actually want to wake up or in those evenings when it is bright late that we can actually just reduce the amount of light in there. It's one of the best things that we can do for our sleep is to ensure we're getting light when it's useful first thing in the morning and avoiding light in the evening 
because it's so important for our body's rhythms, those circadian rhythms. They're so heavily influenced by daylight or the absence of daylight. This is something that we can do that makes a big difference. Getting out in natural sunlight or daylight if you're in the UK and you haven't seen the sun in the winter months. But the daylight coming through those clouds is more powerful than anything you've got in your home in terms of artificial light. And then ensuring you're not exposed to light in the evenings. That's, that's a very powerful mechanism. But of course, there are other aspects to this, like we don't think of it a lot, but temperature. You mentioned bedding, mm-hmm. um, Pilar. That, you know, this is an important aspect of it, but if we can keep the ambient air temperature of our bedrooms cooler, it's more likely to lead to sleep. And that means you, the, the bed itself could be warmer. You could be warm in the bed, but the air temperature to keep that cool and, and a generally agreed temperature is about 18 degrees Celsius. And that's cooler than many people have their bedroom, especially with indoor heating and, and things like that. And that's also why it's been very disruptive over the last few weeks for people up here with those higher temperatures because the ambient temperature has been far too high. And a drop in our body temperature is one of those cues to the brain, uh, one of the many, that it's time to go to sleep. So keeping it cooler plays a big role in that. Now, you mentioned something when we were preparing for this, specifically Mm. about the use of alarm clocks. Tell me more. Yeah, well, the... The thing is, <laughs> that's the thing I've noticed that makes a big difference. I didn't realize how much of a big difference having an alarm clock made until I started traveling and had to use my smartphone as an alarm clock. And of course, doing that means that the alarm goes off and immediately it's phone. Um, and even at um, at night, the presence of the phone even can, <laughs> can, can make me just a little bit more alert. And I think mm. that for me, it's that alarm clock is really important to, and also if you, if I wake up in the middle of the night to check the time, I can check the time in the alarm clock as well. And then it, I don't have to interact with another device. And I have heard this um, being, being an issue with people. It's the fact that because they don't have an alarm clock, they need to have their phones in their room, which affects their sleep in all the ways you've mentioned. Absolutely. It might be just uh, the FOMO of, I wonder what's going on in the world. I'll have a quick look at my phone and scroll through all that stuff. It might be that for whatever reason we wake up and it's nothing to do with the phone, but the phone is there and Mm. that could keep us awake a little bit longer. And of course, we know that just the mere presence of a phone near us can keep us a little bit more alert or aware of it or braced for it to do something. So out of sight, out of mind can be a really good idea. And to use those simple unitasking devices like an alarm clock, it does one thing and it does it really, really well. You can't look at Twitter on your alarm (laughs) clock, can you? So we need to keep our um, bedroom comfortable, cool, dark, just set up for sleep as opposed to bright and entertaining and full of sources of stimulation. And and that's, if you think about it, how many bedrooms in the, the contemporary world are, are, are set up. Now, each to their own with this. I'm not going to tell you to remove the TV from your bedroom, um, but notice the impact that endless entertainment can have on your sleep time and how much you might be relying on willpower. And, and of course, how much you're unintentionally depriving yourself of enough sleep because one more chapter one more episode, one more box set, whatever it is with the endless entertainment that we've, uh, many of us have, have access to these days. So 
Stuff we do during the day can have a real impact on our capacity to get to sleep or stay asleep. Our evening routine and the run-up to bedtime, of course, can have a big impact. And, and what we do in the bedroom, whether it's working or using devices or even just the bedroom itself and that ambience uh, that we find ourselves in can contribute to it. I've kind of cherry-picked a few things here today. There are so many more factors that can play a role in um, our ability to sleep. But what I wanted to do was look at the things that we've got more control over. So hopefully that's given listeners some thoughts. Again, don't do them all at once. Experiment. And if you've got any real concerns about your sleep, uh, reach out to someone who is qualified to give you advice. The double-edged sword of sleep being a universal uh, shared experience is that everyone thinks they're an expert and everyone has advice about sleep. And so much of it could be um, at best um, nonsense, but at worst it could be really bad advice and run contrary to what's good for us. So talk to a professional if you have real concerns. Pilar, anything to throw into the mix before we wrap up this episode? Just to build on what you were saying there, that it really pays off to be aware of what helps you to get a good night's sleep and what disturbs the sleep so that you can tweak uh, and, and again, like you say, and control what you have control over. But that self-awareness, I think it really pays off. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening. You can find uh, all of the show notes for this episode, and I'll be linking to a few resources there at worklifepsych.com slash podcast. And of course, if you've got questions or follow-up points or um, arguments that go in the opposite direction of anything we've said today, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a, a brief message on Twitter at mypocketpsych, or you can send us a more extensive email uh, via email at, uh, sorry, podcast at worklifepsych.com podcast at worklifepsych.com we love to hear from listeners we hope you find this useful food for thought maybe some ideas for small changes that you can make let us know if you make any of these changes and they have a positive impact for you so until next time thank you for listening for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.